0: We are here uh, at the end, the end portion of Philippians chapter 2, where we've been for a little while here in this study. We're taking our time sort of trekking through this uh, beloved letter of the Apostle Paul's. And we've seen mostly as we've gone through chapter 2 especially that he has, uh, the Apostle Paul has sought to demonstrate just how the life of joy that he is somewhat sort of, uh, sort of expressing throughout this letter is seen specifically in Jesus Christ and specifically in his humility. As we've seen so far uh, throughout the course of this chapter, we've seen in verses 1 through 4 as we, as we went through it, sort of the essence of... Of humility as it is sort of defined as Paul is talking about in verse 3 especially where he talks about uh, others esteeming or those esteeming others better than themselves this sort of uh, giving others the benefit of the doubt and, and, and then we have this really much epitomized in uh, verses 5 through 8 as Paul has uh, gone to that very rapturous song we might say of the Lord Jesus Christ and his embodiment of humility him taking on no reputation taking on the form of a servant and coming and being obedient unto death, as it says in verse 8, even the death of the cross. And then we had in verses 9 through 11 this fact that is, I would say, fundamental to Scripture, which is just that humility, those who humble themselves before this awesome God are the ones, the precise ones that he exalts. And that's very much seen here as the Lord Jesus is, is prophesied to be the one who is exalted above all things, the, the king of all. Yes, regardless of those, whether they believe in the Lord Jesus as savior or if they don't, there is coming a day when, as it says, everyone, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And then we had in verses twelve through eighteen this we could, we called it the enterprise of humility. Just what it does, this this humility that we are to be uh, aligning our lives in prepares us for the work of God on us. This. Humility is sort of defining, is the defining, I would say, characteristic that Paul is expressing here of of the church. That those who are a part of Christ's church ought to be characterized by one of the fundamental qualities of Christ himself, which is this humility that he has, in all of these verses, sort of trying to be uh, expressing and considering. And that's where we come now to this fifth and final consideration out of this uh, very important and consequential chapter, which is verses 19 through the end of the chapter, which Pastor Nathan read, which I think we have the example of humility. And again, it's an example that is, I would say, real world. And what I mean by that is an example that comes through uh, church members, we could say, church ministers, those who are, we could say, uh, are like us. And I think this is really important as he talks about uh, two individuals, and he sort of refers to himself, Paul does. I think he gives these, I would say, down-to-earth examples of what it looks like for someone to consider others before himself, to consider the needs of those around him uh, before his own needs. And I think that in that way, he gives us these three examples to show us what this life of joyful humility, as he's been talking about, really Looks like. So we're going to look at that here tonight, and as we go through seeing these three different individuals and just what they show us about what this humble life, this joyful life in Jesus Christ looks like. To that end, I want to notice, first of all, uh, in the first couple verses there, as we begin in verse 19, I've called it the future hope of Timothy. The future hope of Timothy. Notice as he says there in verse 19, Paul does, but I trust. And the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus, or Timothy, shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man, this is a very incredible description of, uh, that, the Paul, that Paul gives here of another individual, as he says, I have no man like-minded. Will naturally care for your state. Paul says quite clearly that above all the other ministers that which he is ministering for the sake of the gospel, this man Timothy that he has taken under his wing, so to speak, is one that is above the rest in terms of his like mindedness with him in terms of the gospel. Now remember. Paul is writing this particular letter, as he does with Colossians and Ephesians. He's writing from Roman imprisonment. He talks about bonds in chapter 1 in verses 7 and 13 and 14 and 16. He refers to those chains that he's sitting in. He's sitting in a Roman jail cell after he appealed unto Caesar in a lower court. And and it's interesting to note that, as we've said elsewhere, that Paul isn't just Sitting around, uh, waiting around for his fate to be decided. He's writing letters. He's ministering unto churches. And as he's dictating this letter, I think it's fascinating to note that he is sort of revealing his plans. Of course, Paul is, is, is not sure exactly of what's going to come or what's going to be made of, of his fate. But he is revealing that it's my plan, as he says in verse 19. It's my plan to send Timothy to you to continue the work of the gospel. I trust in the Lord Jesus, as he says, to send Timothy shortly unto you. As he says in verse 22, But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with a father he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send Presently or shortly or promptly. And I think it's fascinating to look at this particular scene. Just in terms of what Paul is revealing. By this revelation of this plan to send Timothy to the church at Philippi. He is considering the fate of the Philippians. He's considering their faith. He's considering their spiritual well-being. As he says there in verses 19 and 20. I want to know your state. He's Literally talking about their condition of their spirituality and their faith. He is concerned for them. Yes, even as he is in chains, even as he is in bonds, imprisoned falsely, I might add, he is there considering the fate of others, considering the condition of others. He wants to make sure that they are being taken care of. He wants to make sure that the gospel work that he had begun in them would continue. And that's why he entrusts Timothy to them. He is sure that perhaps they've heard of his imprisonment and perhaps his impending fate. Remember, as we'll get to in a moment, we will note that Paul is here sitting in this Roman jail cell. And who has imprisoned him? None other than Emperor Nero. That very fanatical Roman Caesar here has Paul's life in the balance. And yet what is Paul concerned with? (laughs) He's concerned with Timothy's ministry to this church. And he's willing, most willing I might add, to send his most trusted ministerial companion, Timothy, to them. To care for them. To watch over them. I have no man like-minded, what Paul says, who will naturally care for your state. This is in contrast to many others that were amongst Paul, as he says in verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ. And we have that wonderful sort of description through the opposite Everyone who is not of Jesus Christ, they are seeking their own thing. But those who are Christ's, they are seeking others' benefit. They are seeking to care for those that are around them. And this Timothy has proven. We don't have to go through Timothy's life. But he is a, a very remarkable character in the New Testament. One who has stuck with Paul very literally through thick and thin seeing as he found him at Lystra back in Acts chapter 16 and was with him through all the ups and downs of Paul's missionary journeys. And of course we know that this same Timothy is the one to whom Paul writes those wonderful letters as he entrusts the ministry of the church to this young Timothy. He has, As he says there, his character is proven, ye know the proof of him. He's a faithful gospel minister, as Paul is here uh, describing these like-minded in the sense that he will put your needs above his own. I think how indicative ought that to be of us as well. This like-mindedness in the gospel. He's saying, my hope for the future is that Timothy would come and minister to unto you. Because I know and I trust and I am very sure and certain that he will embody the same joyful humility right where you are. And therefore, as the Philippians might have been concerned, they might have been distraught over the fate of their beloved apostle. He's sitting in a Roman jail cell. His death might be imminent. He is here writing to them, you can be rested, you can be assured (laughs) The gospel is going to continue even if I do not. Because Timothy is like-minded in the gospel, as he says. Therefore, their hope was sure. Their hope was certain. Their hope was secure, not because of some man, but because this gospel is powerful and effectual. And it brings about exactly what God desires to bring about. I love this hope that Paul has this hope of the future that he puts into Timothy. He says I trust I trust that you will receive him. I trust that he will minister unto you. Him therefore I hope to send presently. I love this this fact that Paul is Giving and we 're laying so much confidence in this young man, Timothy, and he says that this gospel will continue to go forth, so we have this future hope that is embodied in Timothy, but also I want to get to this because uh, secondly, I think we see a present expectation that has existed in the apostle Paul, the present expectation of Paul, because not only does he convey this hopeful future, but there 's this sort of Tension that's relayed in Paul's words. Notice again verse 23. Him, therefore, I hope to send, referring to Timothy as we noted, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. He expects to send Timothy very shortly unto them, but I like it's fascinating to me that he says, I'm waiting to see what will become of me. I'm waiting to see how it will go with me before I dispatch him unto you. Which I find to be one of the more curious statements of the Apostle Paul. As we've noted back in chapter 1, he is not overly concerned about his own life. As he says in chapter 1, where is that verse? 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's not overly anxious about this idea of death. Although he says here he almost has this anxiousness about his words. I'm waiting to see how it's going to go. And then I I will send him unto you. And yet he says, but I trust in the Lord. I think it's fascinating that these words are so conjoined together. I think they show that Paul... Unlike, or Paul did not know any better than anyone else what the future holds. (laughs) I think that much is clear. He's an apostle, yes, but he's a man just like you and just like me. He's a human just like you and just like me, who has a very stunted uh, 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 sort of um, ability to discern the future. And even here, he is not sure what the future holds, even for him. I'm not sure how it will go. I don't know what the future holds, but I trust him. Therefore, I hope to send to you presently so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord. I love how those phrases are put up against one another because I think that's the language of faith. That's the language of humility. I don't know, but I trust. I don't know, but I am trusting in someone else who does know. I don't know how these events are going to pan out. I don't know how the details are going to work out and how it's going to be with me, if it is going to be well or if it's going to be ill with me. But I trust. I trust not only to send Timothy, but I love this expectation that Paul is here expressing. I trust even more than that to see you. To see you face to face. This language of humble faith I find so remarkable. Because I I find it speaking even to myself. I don't know but I trust. As I've said in other occasions that this this, this dauntingness of the future can often leave us uh, sort of whittled down. And weighted down by just the unknown of it all. What does the future hold? What does the next year hold? What does the next couple months hold? How will this country go? Will it keep going and plunging itself into socialism? Will the church be ridiculed and persecuted for what they are preaching and what they are saying? Will you and I, those who believe in Jesus Christ, will we be ostracized and marginalized and pushed to the sidelines? I don't know. But I trust and I believe and I am confident of one thing, that God's work will continue. And I think this is the language of Paul here. This joyful humility at the fact that he doesn't know but he still trusts in the one who does. His confidence is so you're stirred by this leaving of his life to Christ's control. And again, as we noted, Paul is here coping with this prospect of death just around the corner. It's facing him. It's imminent for him, perhaps. And yet again, as we've noted, his thoughts are not on himself. He's not asking for more ministerial needs. He's not asking uh, for uh, more lawyers to circle around him to help his case, to get him out of these chains. He's entrusting his life to the control of Christ. The the king of kings. And this is his prevailing concern. The state of this church. And he's sure. He's confident that through Paul yes. But even through himself. Through this as he's sure of. That God has a plan. Christ has a system and a scheme that he is working out. Yes even through this obstacle of being in chains. Not to re preach chapter one, verse twelve. But I love that phrase. And I think it's echoed here in our text, but chapter one, verse twelve he says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Contrary to what many might have expected, this moment Paul is seeing as the furtherance, the expansion, the extension of the work of Christ's good news. As insane, as otherworldly, as contrary as that statement seemed, he was so confident. And I think he's demonstrating it here. He's been able to preach to the Roman praetorium. He couldn't have asked for a better audience. (laughs) He's preaching the gospel to them. Even as he's in chains. And he's demonstrating this otherworldly humility. As he endures this horrible treatment. And yes even as he's concerned with other people before himself. He's concerned not with his own predicament. But Christ's church. Christ's people. And the ongoing work in them and for them and with them. And I think it's. It's a testament to the work that God's spirit does in us. This humility bears itself out in this overwhelming concern for others that Paul here demonstrates as he's concerned for the Philippians. This future hope of Timothy, this present expectation of Paul. But lastly, I want to look at the past issue of Epaphroditus. The past issue of Epaphroditus because I think here we have this really interesting testimony that Paul here relays of this really fascinating character to me this man Epaphroditus which I think exactly precisely is getting at the heart of what he's been referring to this whole time. Yes, he's talked about and he's relayed it now to us by simple definition, by the example that Christ gives us, by what it will do to us. And now he's given an example of Timothy and an example of himself. But I think almost above uh, those other two, he gives us this example of Epaphroditus. Apparently, he was visiting Paul. Visiting Paul in jail, as he says in verse 25, I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, as he says, your messenger. As we know from chapter 4, verse 18, it says, I have, But I have all in abound, and I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So this messenger from Philippi, Epaphroditus, comes and ministers unto Paul bringing him perhaps financial needs or perhaps uh, sustenance perhaps other uh, sort of practical ministry that he is bringing to Paul's physical needs and yet at the same time Epaphroditus uh, proceeds to unload some burdens so to speak as Paul says notice I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus my brother and companion and labor and fellow soldier but your messenger and in the he that ministered to my wants for he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness because that ye he had heard that he had been sick. So he's meeting Paul's needs, but he's also sharing some of his own. Perhaps he's burdened for some people in the church. Perhaps this uh, disagreement that we'll get to in chapter four between these two ladies in the church, Eudoxus and Centecky. Perhaps he's uh, sharing the, uh, the, the the causes and the reasons for that disunity that had stirred up a little bit. And here Paul's recounting this Epaphroditus, he cared so deeply and so intensely for you that it caused him great heaviness, distress it literally means, which actually led to this sickness. And apparently he was so sick that he had to spend some time in Rome as he says, you had heard that he had been sick. So apparently he had to stick around stick around in Rome to uh, to receive medical aid or medical assistance here and it was so severe that he was nigh unto death and news eventually got back to Philippi and news had returned back to Rome that now Philippi was concerned not just for Paul but for her Epaphroditus too for indeed he says in verse 27 he was sick nigh unto death but God had mercy on him And not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. This sickness was severe, almost costing Epaphroditus his life. And yet, Paul gives abundant testimony to the prayers and mercies of God's church as he says, This mercy comes down, and Epaphroditus recovers, and Paul says, I'm spared. (laughs) I'm spared from having to see my brother perhaps lose his life. And also to see, you, uh, to see you have sorrow because of his loss as well. And then we have this amazing testimony of Paul here. This testimony that Epaphroditus is doing exactly as Paul has been talking about. Notice verse 28. I sent him therefore the more carefully... Sent him back to you, as, it's, as now we have to imagine Epaphroditus is here reading this letter to the church. I sent him, therefore, more carefully, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, and the Lord with all gladness and holds such in reputation. Why? Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. It's amazing, this word of Paul about this man, Epaphroditus. He put others before himself. Even though he was in agony, yes, near unto death, he is agonizing over the church. He's not regarding himself, as it says, not regarding his life. He's actually physically ministering unto me. Regarding the good of others before himself. He wasn't thinking about how he could save his life and protect himself. He's thinking about Paul and, and thinking about his Philippian brothers and sisters. Their needs took precedence over his own. And this is exactly why Paul is so adamant that he, as he says, be held in reputation. This past issue. Of Epaphroditus it didn't draw forth more self-regard, more self-interest, more self-preservation. It actually manifested this love that poured itself out in a joyful humility to meet others' needs before his own. This to me is the gospel having its full effect. The truth that Christ made himself of no reputation which informs the way in which we ought to minister to others as well. And Paul is saying, I witness it firsthand. I witness it firsthand, this brother Epaphroditus and his unselfish heart. Which I think is why in verse 25 he gives him one of the most glowing uh, recommendations in the entire Bible. You know, I was mentioning this in the midweek Bible study and I've, I've thought a lot about it. But it's incredible to me how Paul describes this man. Notice verse 25 again, Epaphroditus my brother and companion and, and companion in labor and fellow soldier. He has high regard for this man who considered the needs of others before himself. And yet, this is all we know about this man. He's not mentioned again other than in chapter 4. He's not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. And yet, despite that, he, holds, he is held in such high regard by the Apostle Paul. He says, hold him in reputation, hold him in honor, because he is a true minister of the gospel, Paul is saying. So with Epaphroditus, he is a sort of flesh and blood example of this joyful humility that we have in Jesus. And I just, I just get this picture. Epaphroditus is now coming back to this church, his beloved church at Philippi. And he is perhaps reading this letter to his brothers and sisters And he comes to this this section of the letter. Perhaps he pauses. He's amazed that Paul would include this in this missive. And how it must have inspired this church. To see and hear an apostolic testimony of exactly what he's getting at. This joyful humility we can have in Jesus. And it comes... Through this future hope of Timothy. This present expectation of Paul. And this past issue of Epaphroditus. All of which to say the future and the present and the past. All aspects and areas and facets of our life. Can be committed to this one who knows and does all things for our good. And I've thought about this passage. This section as Paul is giving some practical examples of what he's been talking about. And just... How comprised it is of events that are out of his control. He's not able to minister to other people except through letters. He's not able to minister to this church except through other sort of substitutes, other representatives. And how true it is that often there are events in our life that are well beyond our ability to control. Like Paul, our plans are hindered, they are often hampered by things that we have no ability to exert control over unforeseen problems, unexpected illnesses, unwelcome government intrusion. <laughs> There's things that happen that are outside of our ability to push back sometimes. And yet, like Paul, evidence is here. We can submit and surrender ourselves to the humility of Christ. Knowing that the future is sure. The present is taken care for. Because the past is sure and confident in Jesus Christ. This life of joyful humility is unimpeded by life's headaches. And I found that to be true. That we can surrender ourselves to someone who knows better than we do. We can surrender to this Jesus Christ alone who, as it says in verse 8, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And that we too are to make ourselves of no reputation for those who are around us. Understanding that this is the primary function of the church. Ministering to the needs of others. As Paul is here evidenced through 30 verses... Humility is the lifeblood of joy. It's the lifeblood of unity. And it comes through to fruition through this Jesus Christ alone. I love how Paul is here. Laid out this wonderful chapter. This example after example of what it means to submit to someone above us. And even yes, submit ourselves to those who are around us. I've been challenged, I think, in fact, that this chapter is so important for the ministry and the effectiveness of any church. Those verses, especially verses 3 and 4. Let me read them again. Let nothing, as he says, be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This, as he would go on to say, is the mind of Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind, this mind of minding other people and their needs and their, uh, their sort of physical lack, we might say, and supplying it and filling it. Speaking a word in season. This is what it means to be the church, I would say. It's submitting ourselves to the wisdom of God and to the humility that we see in Jesus Christ, knowing that He's the one who keeps the church. He's the one who keeps it and binds it and sustains it. He's the one who knows all things and in whom all things consist. And as we have here, we are sure that the future, whatever it might hold, is sure, but it is unsure to us, but it is already planned out in the Lord Jesus. I think that's what it means to be humble in the face of a life that is unknown and is uh, unexpected. I will admit that's hard to do sometimes. For me, it's hard to do. (laughs) It's hard to surrender myself to plans that I haven't had a a, a hand in. (laughs) It's hard to submit myself to uh, plans that are unknown. I like calendars. I like having my weeks planned out. I like having things detailed so I can know what to expect. (laughs) Which is, I think is why this passage speaks to me. (laughs) Because like Paul, I don't know, but I trust. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm trusting in the one who has sustained me, who has sustained my brothers and sisters, as he says, and the one who is for sure going to sustain us even now. That, I think, is the humility that Christ showed and brought to bear. as the humility that ought to define us, his church. May we continue to find Christ as our life of joy as we live also likewise the life of joyful humility. Let us pray.